everyone. You're glad to be at church today. I need to have a heart-to-heart -heart with you to start this. I need to know just as your pastor and the people around you who prayed for snow. Get out. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Amy Fair was like, we need moisture. I'm like, why would you say that? Whoever comes to pastor on Sunday morning and says, isn't the snow lovely? Man, pastor's like, get behind. Man, some people that stay home from church and it snows, like, I gotta go to work, but I'm gonna, no. I'm like, we gotta figure out a way to publicly shame whichever children and venue kids are praying for snow. God, I just need one more snowman, God. <laughs> hey, we're gonna be talking today in a sermon I've called Midnight Jail about um, we, we're in a series called Graves into Gardens about how every uh, gar every grave turns into a garden when, when God gets a hold of it. And um, it's the distance between sowing a seed and the distance between the seed going into the ground and dying. There's like a death cycle and a dormancy cycle and a wilderness period from that seed going into the ground and dying until it comes to fruition in your life. There's a period of time that's hard. So far, I've been talking about that in your life, saying, hey, you got to invest in the time in the middle for that seed to come to fulfillment so that it can be a miracle and it can belong to God. Now, the, the, what we're going to talk about today is when, when God asks you to sow a seed, and maybe he's doing this right now, 100% he is because he asked me to preach this. You need to sow a seed so God's dream can come true in the life of somebody else. Thanks, Sean. Sowing a seed into your own life is one thing, but when you realize that God is, is much bigger than that, and when you sow a seed and, and, and it needs to go into the ground and die, it's not just for you, it's for somebody else. In fact, if all you are concerned about is that you get back a harvest in your life, you're really missing the point. And we say it at Venue Church all the time, like you'll never find your destiny, you'll never find your purpose until you help somebody else find their purpose. In helping them find their purpose, which is why we want you on the dream team, which is why we want you serving the city, which is why we want you giving. When you help somebody find their purpose, then God helps you find your purpose. But there is this time that, that, that you need to, to go through the dormancy cycle, the death cycle, for somebody else's dream to come true that God gave them. Now, um, has anybody ever given, uh, given up an opportunity or sowed seed into your life um, or gone... Maybe, um, has anybody ever sacrificed so that you would have an opportunity? Yeah. Right, like has anybody ever given up something so that you, maybe your boss took a huge leap of faith in hiring you? Yeah. Or keeping you, Chad? <laughs> or keeping you, maybe somebody has given up something to invest in your life as well. Now, now, I think that parenting is kind of the most natural example of this. We would understand this in parenting. Um, now, now, just to start, sometimes we experience the death cycle so another's dream comes true. So the death cycle that you're in is not just about you. Sometimes we experience so that, that the dream that God gave to somebody else or he's, he's going to give to somebody else can come true in their life as well. And in that, God actually fulfills the dream he has for your life. But we have to get outside of, um, outside of just investing in our own lives. Sometimes you have to go through a wilderness for somebody else. We're going to find out today in the story of Paul and Silas. Sometimes you have to go to jail for somebody else to be freed. Sometimes there is that period of incarceration, come on Alberta, where you have to go through it so that somebody else can realize freedom. Now, um, I have one more sermon to preach called Skeleton 
valley, I think, is what I'm going to call it. Sermon titles change often. About that song, Rattle, so I guarantee we'll sing it next week. Um, it's, it's referencing a scripture about a valley full of dry bones, growing, all of a sudden rising up, Venue Church, to become an army out of nothing, out of an old defeat in your life. God can raise up, come on, Venue Church, God can raise up an army out of dry bones in a valley that maybe we lost a war in. And uh, that's going to be great. I have one more in Graves in the Gardens, and we're just going to then kick into a series about relationships. Where I'm really going to, do you want to hear like our family? Like if there's one thing that we don't do, it's our do not in our family. I'm not going to tell you now. You've got to come back for that relationship series. I'm going to be like, thou shalt not. There's only one thing in our home. Thou shalt not. There's two things in our home. Thou shalt not, the main thing, and then thou shalt also not mouth off mom, or you can move to Mexico. All right. Thou shalt respect thy mother. All right, but the, the, I'm going to give you the other one. But hey, um, also, Mother's Day is in this. And, uh, and I was talking, and I, uh, we, we were at staff, and I, I said to Pastor Aaron, I'm like, you need to preach on Mother's Day. And she said, I'll pray about it. And I'm like, you don't have to pray about obedience, sweetheart. You've been voluntold. Anybody want to hear Pastor Aaron preach on Mother's Day? That's called public manipulation. I don't care. That's what God wants. And he does. And that's going to be, uh, that's going to be great. Hey, you know, Aaron's given up a lot to raise our children. Um, my mom gave up a lot to raise us. She had a career kind of handed to her. She had to work for it, of course, but she had a, a, an entire career uh, in the teaching industry. Her mom was one of the best teachers in the whole area. And so she had this career handed to her that she eventually gave up because she felt God wanted her to so that she could raise Ryan and I. And um, it could be a stay-at-home mom. Now, if you're a single parent, like, man, you're our hero. And we are glad that you come to this church because we help you. <laughs> And, and there are father figures and mother figures and aunts and uncles in the house of God. And you don't, your children don't need to lack any good thing. And, uh, and we love you. Um, but in their family, God asked my mom to give up her whole career. And um, so my dad, they decided they were going to live on less. And my dad, you know, took the responsibility of, of earning the bread for the family. And, and um, now, if you're, if sometimes before you have kids, you think that having kids is going to be a, a huge break. And maybe some of your kids were, but I'll tell you, there were many times when my mom wished she could go back to her nine to five because it was not nearly as frustrating as raising. One time she, um, she had barricaded herself in front of the oven because um, oven doors weren't as uh, insulated as they were now. And so they'd get real hot. You know, they could actually uh, burn a child and she was making cookies or something. So she barricaded, she made a barricade to keep me out. Until she realized, like, this is stupid. Why am I a prisoner in my own home in front of my own stove for that kid? <laughs> Anybody a prisoner in their own home? Okay. You'll think it's funny in a year or 20 years or whenever this thing ends. She's like, why, why am I a prisoner in my own home? I just need to train this kid. So she, she bit the bullet and she, she says to me, Corey, don't touch the oven door because it's going to get hot. Don't touch the oven door. And then I gave her one of those looks sitting in my diaper. I gave her one of those looks that if you've never had a, a, a child, Corey, you don't know. And it was a look that's like, who died and put you in charge? And why would you tell me something I'm not allowed to touch? Why would you ever bring up something that I'm not allowed to touch? Don't tell Adam in the garden, hey, there's one tree that you can't eat from. Because if Adam has my personality, that's the only tree I want to eat from. I don't care about the rest now. 
You don't have kids like me. That's why. Ask my mom about it. And I gave her a look that said, well, you, you, can't, you can't keep me out. There's no prison that can hold me. Men in black. There's no prison that can hold me. And so the Holy Spirit downloaded something on her that you probably would call child abuse now if you haven't had any real kids. She turned the oven up about halfway maybe or something that was good and warm. Warm enough to, here's a parenting tip, write this down. Warm enough to hurt but not harm. A little pain is better than getting hit by a car out on the street. Hurt but not harm. And I walked over. She's like, don't do it. And I walked over in front of her. My little diaper butt walked up there. Looked at my mom. She's like, don't do it. <clears throat> the lady knew something. The lady was right. And uh, you know what? She never had to build another barricade to keep me out again. But here's the thing. She had to give up her career to teach me that moment. Now, I'm not saying that God has uh, called you to do that, moms. I I'm not saying that. But she had to give up a lot. To, to raise us, us boys. And um, my dad was a very successful in the 70s, making lots of money, promotions all the time, doing very well. But you know, how many people know that all the money in the world, if you're not doing what God wants you to do, all the money in the world doesn't matter. And they were just getting upset inside. They're just like, we're not, we're not helping people the way that we feel like God wants us to. Now you might be out in the work world and when you're out there, you might be the only, that's your mission field. That you might be the only hope that they have for Christ. But they were feeling like a call to pastoring. And so they gave up this great career with incredible everything. You know, new house, new, new everything. And, um, and God told them to move to Pasadena, California to help for free a missions organization. In three years, they ate up all of their savings to live down there because my dad didn't have a green card. And God taught them how to live by faith. Now, don't ever think that pastoring, there's no price to pay. Because sometimes there would be no food in the fridge for the next morning. And then and they're like, what do we do now? And some of y'all want to live by faith, but by that you mean you don't want to go to work. But that was not my dad. <laughs> my dad, just to be a cope, you have to have three jobs. Just before they even let you be a baby in the family. You have to have three baby jobs. And so one of my aunts one time, I, I saw one of the girls, one of my cousins brought a, 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 you know, a boyfriend in. And she's like, so how many, uh, how many jobs do you have? And he's like, she's like, if it's one... Just keep walking. This isn't the family for you. If it's two, what kind of jobs? You know what I'm talking about? Like how many hours are we talking? If it's three, welcome to the family. And um, so my dad was geared to work, but he didn't have his green card. And so he couldn't. And so there was one time when I was a child that, that I mean, there would be no food in the fridge sometimes. And then the knock would be on the door and somebody would leave grocery money in the door for us. What a, a horribly humiliating experience for my dad. But God was breaking him to show him what God had called him to. And one time as a little child, as a little boy, I'm like, dad, why can't you get a real job like all my friends' dads have so that I can have shoes? But my dad and, and that sacrifice and that breaking in his time, see, it was the, the period between the seed dying and that dormancy and that death cycle. He was going through to teach me a very valuable lesson that money can't teach you. So that when later he said to me, son, don't ever make a, a decision that is only based on money, ever. And my dad taught me that if you can't help people, who cares how much money you have? Helping people is the only thing that matters. Helping them connect with God and helping them to connect with people. That's it. If you can't do that, all the money in the world. Now, if you got all the money in the world, I'm glad you're coming to church here. If you do, helping people, it's the only thing that matters. Um, there are so many stories I could tell you about the sacrifices that they give up for me. The sacrifice that, that 
Every parent makes for their child. Of course, we understand this in parenting, but we have to understand this on a broader, broader scale, I think. Um, now, let me ask you this. In a, in a world where everything has to be fair all the time, which means like, why didn't I win the race? I want to win the, win the race. I want the blue ribbon. Well, sometimes people who don't even run the race want the blue ribbon. Like back when I was a kid, you actually had to do stuff to get stuff. I'll tell you, when I was a boy, I hated participation badges. Don't give me a participation badge. I want to win something. Well, back then you actually had to get good marks to win. What's the average age here? I feel like I'm hurting people's feelings. <laughs> There's this thing now of like equal opportunity, but that doesn't mean what it used to mean to our parents and grandparents and great grandparents uh, or fairness. Back then, fairness and equal opportunity meant like the right of humans to have dignity and to eat and to have shelter. I mean, like human rights, they were based on like human rights. And now when we say like, that's not fair. And when I say it moving forward, I mean the immature version, which is like a child version, which means I didn't get what I want right now. And I'm mad. When I demand fairness for me now, that sometimes means like, hey, give me what's fair, which it just means give me something that they don't have. And I don't care about them, just give me this. Right? And so if you, if you have immature employees, they're like, well, that's not fair that so-and-so, why did she get promoted? And, and the, the boss or the manager, you're like, she did the work. Like equal opportunity, like the door opens equally to everybody, but how far you go in is up to you. How about, how about consequence? So fairness doesn't include consequence anymore, um, but it used to. Like, well, no, you did the stupid thing. You broke the window, so pay to fix it. Right? When, when we say fairness, we have to get this, it's, it's a really an entitled to human comfort thing today. Like today's personal human comfort, that's what I mean by fair now. And, um, and it shouldn't mean that at all, but when we think about it like that, you, have your parents not given up what was fair in the immature sense? What was comfortable? Have they not given up what was comfortable to help you? Now, maybe you had terrible parents, but at least they did give up something. They still tried. They're, they're, you know what I mean? Like they had to give up what was comfortable in the moment for them. What they actually, maybe they had to give up their own dream to help you push you forward. Somebody's done that in your life. Well, that's where you're at right now, where somebody, God is trying to push somebody else's dream forward, but somebody got to pay the price for it. Now, um, what we have to do is get this idea of what is fair out. We got, we got to, we got to flush it. And this is how we got to think, not what's fair. What's effective? What is effective? Not what's fair in raising my children. Now look, if I give ice cream to one, I know what the other three are gonna be demanding. So there's that, but I mean, no, no, what's effective? I want children who are raised to understand what is effective. Effective can be um, defined as this, success. So personal fairness, meaning my comfort, that will not bring me success. I will have to give up some of that. And I'll have to give up some of that for you to be successful too. Um, uh, the, the word um, effective also means it can be, in, in an army term, it's somebody who's fit and available for service. But see, some of us, we sit on the couch, we are neither fit nor available for service, but we want to win the war. So these guys go out here, these, all these effectives go out there, fight the battle, and we're like, well, how come nobody's promoting us? And they're like, we don't even know who you are, you're not even out here. You know? Effective. Effectiveness is also defined as results orientation. This is what, as a nation, we have to get back to. Results orientation. Now, we're in this day right now that's like, hey, the ends justifies the means. And so we're trying to keep people from dying of COVID. So the ends justifies the means. 
You come back next week. I'm going to light you up. I'm going to show you there's only one COVID stat that matters. I'm going to show you. The ends justifies the means. In a godly society, the ends and means are both justified. But think about it like this. The ends justifies the means. No, in a results orientation. Now what we have to do is we have to get it results oriented because if you get the proper godly result, it will also be by a godly fashion, by a godly method. And so, um, so think about it like this. In a godly society, say, okay, what is beneficial to the whole in a godly fashion is also the most beneficial to every individual in the long run. Every in See, what we're doing now is we're focusing on individuals' rights to comfort and fear and anger right now. If the devil can get you angry, he'll shut your brain off. And so he makes you afraid so that you get angry so that then he can trot out anything in front of you that freaks you out and gets you angry because then what happens is your brain shuts off and you stop thinking. But see, in a godly, okay, in a godly family, what is best for the family in Christ is also the best for every individual eventually. So think about that. So, so rather than like, hey, you have individual rights. No, you got to think corporately because the, the scriptures say even in the church family, and I'll talk about church in a sec. It says in the church family, hey, you might be the hand in the church. That's great. You're not significant because you're a hand. You're significant because of what you belong to. Because the hand is for helping, right? And so health is for helping. Like, let's get you healthy, but not so that you can be happy. You won't be happy till you help. Health is for helping to get you, come on. And so this idea of like, no, you're significant because of what you're a part of, but because of what you're a part of, then the individual receives significance from that. And so my wife has to understand that she can ask anything of me in the family that's a sacrifice that makes it unfair or uncomfortable if that sacrifice benefits the family in Christ. Now, everybody is trying to be their own referee in this thing, but I'm that aside, she ought to be able, my kids ought to be able to ask me. I ought to be able to ask my kids, hey, give up this thing because it would be the best for the family in Christ because it's also the best for you. So in a godly uh, company, I can ask great, if Mike works for me, I can ask great sacrifice of him because in the end, it will benefit him. He'll be able to put food on the table if the company does well in a godly company. In a godly nation, it's the same thing. We can ask any sacrifice of any individual because it, it, it is the best for the whole. But the trouble is we're not living in a godly nation right now. And so now, we're, now the, the rights of the whole and the rights of the individual are at odds with each other. But in a godly society, that, that is never the case. Because the, anything God asks you to give up for the whole is the best for the individual. For freedom and health and life and everything else. It is the best. It is the same thing. It's the ends justified. No, no. It's the ends and means are both justified because they're both done in Christ. Different morality. Different code. Now, um, you just wait till next week. Come back. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to set you free from the fear and the anger. And, uh, and it's going to be powerful. And you're going to go home with a, a different way to think about this entire crisis that we've been in. Um, and just come back. There's so much I want to say about that right now. So much. It will be inflammatory. It won't be. You're going to hear it and you already know that it's happened. I'm just going to clear it up for you and put it all in just a few statements. You're going to be able to realize, oh, there is only one stat that matters. This is it. This is how they compiled it. It's going to be inflammatory. Um, and in the greatest, presiding over the greatest debacle in Canadian history. Anyways, I got this all worked out. Listen, you might come here. Maybe you didn't grow up in church at all. Um, but maybe you came from a church when you were a kid or something. 
A lot of churches have forgotten that is a godly church results-based? Of course it has to be. Because it's mission-based. So if we lose our mission as a nation, or you lose your mission as a company, you're going to lose your way. And then the, the rights of the individual and the safety of the individual also go down. But when you stay focused, laser-focused on mission. So our, our church, our mission, like, hey, a life saved is worth everything. I can ask Candace for anything for that. Absolutely, I can. In Christ, as her brother in Christ, I can be like, hey, I think you need to give this thing up because this person has an opportunity to go to heaven forever. Well, why wouldn't you say yes to that? Every drop of blood, every cent that we have, of course. Why, a life saved is worth everything. Because when they come in, it's best for the whole, and then it becomes best for me. And God's like, great, here's your dream come true. You know? And so when we, when we, it's just a different way of thinking. Now, in a godly church, we have to be results-oriented. So um, I want to sing in the worship team. You want to sing in the worship team? That's great. Equal opportunity, color of skin, whether you're married or not, whether you're economically doing well or not. If you're in a wheelchair or not, you know, we'll find a way. Equal opportunity. Yeah, the door opens equally. However, whether you enter the door is up to you because we also have equal standards. How far you go is completely up to you, but there are some rungs of the ladder you're going to have to work hard and climb. And so, yeah, no, absolutely. Anybody can be on the worship team if you want to do the following things. Then, because everybody on stage, yeah, I mean, just anybody who walks on stage here. Um, look, you can only reproduce who you are. So we have some iPods. Uh, Venue Church has these things called iPods. They're imperatives. These are things that we always do. There are prefer uh, preferences, which means like, hey, we prefer, you know, not to start the worship service with like super quiet songs because people need to wake up. And so, you know, I mean, just preferences. Yeah, this is kind of what we prefer. And then there, um, help me out, optionals, which is like, if you want to play a garbage Gibson guitar, you can totally get, we don't mind. I have a Paul Reed Smith. No, it sounds good. That's fine. It's option. Like what kind of shoes you want to wear on stage? Fine. And then we have the do nots, which means you have to wear shoes on stage because nobody wants to, nobody connect with your nasty feet and worship Jesus. And so why is that? Because Pastor Peter who's my pastor. He's like, I went to one of my campuses one time and here's the worship team and half of them are bare feet. And he's like, what are they doing? Well, they feel like they connect with Jesus better. And he's like, ain't nobody else connecting with Jesus because they're connecting with those feet. <laughs> Do not wear some dang shoes on stage. Unless you have beautiful, no. So here are some of our iPods for the worship ministry. Do you want to know? Yeah. If, you, if you're on stage, this, this is what our expectations are for you. Um, biblical morality. Like, look, I don't mean perfection. I just mean like, look, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're sleeping around and, and doing drugs and you're addicted to, hey, we want to help you get clean. But as soon as you step on the stage, the pressure goes up too. And so you can only reproduce who you are. We, and so we'll ask people sometimes to take a break and be like, hey, let's get this under control in your life because we care more about you than what you do on stage. We care more about you. And so like, hey, we're going to help you. We're going to, are you accountable? Um, you want to cuss and swear? We're not going to give you a microphone. Well, it's how I express myself. Not, yeah, okay. I don't care. Dude, express yourself out in the yard if you want to. But you know what I mean? Like there has to be some sort of standard because what's good for the whole is the best for you too. Then there's um, like tithing. We want a full 10% from everybody who comes on the stage. Why? Because your treasure is where your treasure is, there your heart is. And I don't want somebody on here. I don't want them singing to you in front of you, whose heart isn't with you. 
So I want their heart in the house of God. Their treasure has to come to the house of God. If, you know, look, God will still love you. And if you don't want to give to God, like, yeah, he still loves you. You're his kid, but he can't bless you. He's like, if you want to be blessed, here's what you have to do. That's not fair. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm asking you to give up 10% so that I can make the other go further. And then I can bless your field. And then I can bless this and I can do it all this. It's not fair. Not fair to me is what he's thinking. All it costs you is that. And I have all this to give, like as if our resources are about the same. And as if you're doing the best you can with your money. Anyways, guys, like, really, you're smarter with money than I am? Anyways, that's a whole aside. Look, committed weekly um, small group attendance. We do life with people. And you can, if you're not going to small group, we ask people, okay, you need to take a break because you got to get that right first because the devil will trap you when you get isolated. Got to be in small group. You got to come to first Wednesday. Uh, if you miss that prophetic word, you're going to get off track, you know. Um, how about this one? Th- this, if you come from... Nearly any other church, I can guarantee this is not in, in their types of iPods. The pastor or people he delegates is to have full access to create change at any given time, including before or during a service. This change to be accepted, you ready, and adapted to with no hesitancy or backroom conversations. <sighs> Why? Do you know how many churches I've seen split because the worship leader got out of sync with the pastor? It gets weird when the worship leader is lecturing the pastor about how to worship. It gets a little bit weird. Like, hey, we want a worship service that's four hours long. And the pastor's like, no. Nobody's going to come, you know. Well, we want to do this in worship. We want to sing one song for 25 minutes. And it's going to be all, like, super quiet. And But, like, pastor's like, but my neighbor's going to come and be freaked out. So, you know, what's it called when you have more than one vision? Die vision. That's what, that's what the devil's trying to do. No, I have to have access to this thing, right? And if you don't like that, and if you think that you're the only one who knows how to worship, then don't join the worship team. Totally up to you. But if you do, I can be like, hey, Renee, smile more. I never have to tell her to smile more. I just say it to her so that everybody else smiles more. No, I'm just like, hey, smile more. Hey, watch your... Why? Because God gave the, the burden to me, and I'm ultimately answerable for that. And so it's just, it's just, it's a vision thing, right? Um, also, can you sing or play anything? It's a big deal. If you ever like, so-and-so's on the worship team. Well, how are they? If, if I ever hear they love Jesus a lot, that means they're terrible. Now, if you love Jesus a lot, sing terribly in front of your kids. That's great. But if your kids are running away from you because you can't sing, or, can't sing right, well, why would you, we give you a mic? We might put you on stage and not give you a mic because you're a great worshiper. And that's great. But we're trying to like do something here. Not to hinder everybody. It's like, what key are they singing in? I feel like that person keeps changing the key. You know, it's just a practical thing. Like, well, no. Yeah, equal opportunity, sure. But you actually have to be able to do something to do something. I don't know. But see, they have to lay down rights that other people might have. But you have to lay down rights, Christ follower, for other people to gain freedom. And that's the way that it has always been. Your parents, you're going to have to lay down your rights to personal comfort and to like... Look, as a pastor, I can't watch some things on TV because it corrupts my soul. And then when I preach, that comes out through the preaching. And so I got to lay down some rights that I might have as a human to like mess up my life or whatever that means. I got to lay down some rights so that you can be free. And and I have to be willing to do that. Now, one day, Luke says, we were walking, going down to the place of prayer. We met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. So Mary Magdalene, in our Easter sermon, she had seven devils that Jesus cast out of her. Well, this girl's got at least one. And somebody's making money off it. And uh, see, they had a right to make money. 
They had a, a right to earn a profit, but this poor tortured girl is telling people's fortunes. Now, it's not like the devil can predict everything because um, he's not all-knowing like God, but he can predict you. He's he been watching Gail for a long time. You know, you, humans are not hard for him to predict. He's been watching you for a long time. So there's that prediction element, and they were making money off this. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they've come to tell you how to be saved. That sounds good, but the way she's saying it, there's something about it that's awful. Because Paul, they're just trying to work. They're just trying to... This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated, he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and instantly left her. So there's something in Paul that's like, I don't care what this is going to do to me and my personal freedom, but she's got to be free. So he finally confronts the thing. And the reason they haven't been confronting it is because he knew that something bad was going to happen after that. But sooner or later, he just got to get to this place where he's like, I can't live with that anymore. I can't live with her being in bondage anymore. And I don't care who's making what kind of money. Somebody got it set this girl free. And so it says her master's hope of wealth was now shattered and people do a lot of funny things for wealth. So they grab Paul and Silas and drag them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. So Paul and Silas are identifying with the Jewish people. This is not a Jewish town and the Jews were hated by the Romans. So this is Roman dominated and they're stirring up all these, this whole city is in an uproar. Well, no, it's not just they were. And so you've got to watch yourself. Sometimes you think that everybody is angry like you, but they're not. And you've got to talk them into being angry like you. Well, whenever a pastor hears that, like, and I'm not the only one who thinks that. I always think to myself, yeah, your spouse does, because you don't want to sleep on the couch. Like, hey. <laughs> the whole city. Then it says, they just straight up lie. They're teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. Well, Jesus is like, pay your taxes, guys. Like, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. There were two demographics of people, Romans and everybody else. And the Romans could do anything they wanted to to everybody else. If you had a rod, you could hit somebody with it as long as you had a bigger stick, you know, and um, give them a severe beating. They were severely beaten. And then they were thrown into prison because that wasn't bad enough. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. All for one kind act to a girl that cost somebody money. The jailer was told, now, back in the day, it was uh, often the case that the jailers or the soldiers were highly motivated to keep their prisoners from escaping because if they escaped, then the jailer got their penalty. That's not fair. <laughs> we're not talking about what's fair anymore. This is just the way that it was. When the devil gets a hold of a society, things get bad. And they would do this. They would, they would grab somebody without any due process and beat them within an inch of their life and put them in jail overnight and set them free just to terrorize and, and you know, um, make a, a whole population submit. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon, clamped their feet in stocks. As if it's not bad enough, some of these stocks, they would actually spread your legs in such a way that they would be cramping constantly. And they were already beaten within an inch of their life. They'd had to be dragged in there because they probably couldn't walk. And now... It's midnight, and it says they were complaining like crazy and weeping. They were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening. They were praying and singing hymns to God. How do you do that in their physical condition? These walls, they'd heard weeping. They'd heard screaming. They'd heard anger. They'd heard the walls had never heard singing at midnight. Somebody here, listen, somebody here needs to, the walls where you work have never heard singing at midnight. 
when somebody's been beaten. And maybe you're there, maybe you're there in your family, maybe you're there with that group of friends because they've never heard singing at midnight when everybody else is complaining and just wishing they could die. They, they did, how did they do this? I don't, I don't know. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open. Look, I'm feeling this for Canada right now. And its foundations were shaken. Maybe if we had the courage to sing at midnight, instead of getting all riled up, and sing at midnight, and sing praises to God and be like, hey, God, we're suffering unjust, unjustly, you know, too. God, but we still love you and you still will. And in the end, you'll make things right. And we trust you and we're here to do anything that you want us to. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Well, mo earthquakes mostly just wreck stuff. It's mostly like the Hulk. He's just going to smash something. He's not like going around opening doors, but this was a very specific earthquake. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself because you would too. At least it gives you a quick death. In front of his family, everybody. There's people that you know that are feeling like this right now. You didn't come to church just for you. You need to go back to your neighborhood with something for somebody. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. Paul gave up his sense of justice. Paul gave up his human rights, not just comfort, his human right to dignity, his human right to not be beaten. He gave up, he and Silas gave up their human right, and then they asked everybody else to stay in the prison too. And sometimes, come on, Christ follower, sometimes your body and your heart are telling you to run, but love is telling you to stay. Sometimes you're still in that home because love is telling you to stay. You could go. Nobody would blame you, but sometimes you're still working there and sometimes you still live in your house because love is telling you to stay for your neighbor. And Paul, sometimes I don't even think he wanted to be released because he's like, but there's still the jailer and I'm getting close to him. I just need another week in here. Just give me another month in here. There's something about it. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't put this guy down. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He goes, you know, I used to think when I was a kid that it was the earthquake that caused him. But you know, it wasn't, I don't think it was the earthquake because you don't. I think he just did it because he's like, why would you stay? Why are you still here, man? Why are you still? I don't have whatever it is that makes you do that. I don't even have enough hope in my life to do something like that. You don't even care if you die right now? What hope do you have? Who did this to you? Who did this in your life? I need to get saved. That's as simple as it is. Like, Jesus, I can't pay for my sins. I'm going to come serve you and may your blood cover my sins. Then you have a connection with God. You have a different dad. It can be that simple. It can be that quick. Even at that hour of the night, he cared for them and washed their wounds. He may have actually been the one who wounded them. Sometimes the jailers, that was their responsibility. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. I think we're going to do a baptism service before long. And somebody that you know is going to get baptized. And you're always like, they're never going to, they're never going to give their life to Christ. Yeah, just wait. God's like, challenge accepted. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said that you can go in peace. <laughs> right. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us. Ready? Here's the kicker. Without a trial and put us in prison. And we are Roman citizens. 
So now they want us to leave secretly. Certainly not. Let them come themselves and release us. I can just drop the mic right there. They were Roman citizens the whole time. One word from them, they just, you don't lay hands on a Roman citizen, ever, without a proper trial, ever. They put up with, they submitted to, they had their rights stripped away from them because somebody needed freedom, one poor little girl. And they put up with the whole thing and they never defended themselves and they never took freedom. And they, they took the beating and they took the stocks and they sang anyways. When any word along the entire way would have set them free. But how could they be freed if the girl's not? How could you be free, Christ follower, if your neighbor's not? Because this was about us. This was not about me. And how can I be free? And how can I realize my destiny if my destiny isn't to help them? And they gave up something. And then it says that they, they, the city officials, let me just sum this up. They came and they're just like, please, would you leave the town? And, and Paul's like, yeah, we'll leave when we're good and ready. And then they went and planted a church. Because they're like, I don't want to get free and then kicked out of town. I want them, I want the city to owe us something. Because I still got to plant a church here because it's the only light that this city's got. He found an early believer that they had just, you know, were baptizing Lydia. And now he's got the jailer and his family and they've got the start of a church plant. And he's like, we're not leaving until we're good and done. We're not leaving until Christ has his way in this city. Now, Christ follower, I'm sick and tired of being told what I can and cannot give away. I'm sick and tired of being told what I can do with my own life that I can't sacrifice it or endanger my own life to help somebody else. Come on, Christ follower. That's what freedom is. Don't you tell me what I'm allowed to sacrifice and what I'm not allowed to sacrifice. Christ followers have always been the first in diseased areas and the last ones out. We of all people have hope beyond in the next lifetime. And don't you ever tell me, government, and don't you ever tell me anybody that I can't sacrifice my life for a friend. Greater love has no one than this than to sacrifice and lay down their own lives for a friend. Come on, we have friends that aren't here yet. And I want you to go back and take this hope of the gospel and be like, great courage inside and it's time to sing at midnight. And God will be enough. We're going to sing a song called Jaira, which is translated Jehovah Jaira, which is Yahweh our provider, which means God will be enough. If you're in the middle of jail, if you're in this death cycle, God will be enough for you.